you're listening to Credo. We have this evening a very special priest, a very special man who is very dear to so many people in Cambridge, me included, because he was the parish priest at St. Lawrence's Catholic Church here in Cambridge. But he is now parish priest at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Thetford. So, we are welcoming today Father Pat Cleary, and we are very blessed to have you here with us. You're going to be talking to us about things that can get in the way of our faith. Is that mm. right? Thanks, Lucia. Yes, yeah, good to be here with you and your listeners. And as you know, the name of the program is Credo, I Believe. But there are lots of things that can get in the way of our faith, I think. And, and a lot of my reflections are from my own personal life, really. You know, what has stopped me from being able to say Credo, I Believe, with a, with a good and sincere heart? And, and I think a lot of the things come uh, are not problems, but they're opportunities, so this is not a, a way of, of doing ourselves down, but of seeing how can we do this better? How can we be- believe more fully and with a full heart and a sincere mind? And really it's based on the parable of the sower, you know, where the seed, the seed goes into four different parts, if you remember that story. Some goes on the rock where there's no chance of taking root. Some goes on the thin soil with rock underneath it, and it takes root, and, but it doesn't have any roots. And then some goes into good soil, but there are a load of thistles in there, and it gets sort of choked and strangled, and others go, other seed goes into the pure good soil, which produces the good, the good uh, result. And so it's, it's that way, how, what, what, are the, what are the thistles and thorns and rocks that stop us from receiving the gift of faith? Because it is a gift, isn't it? And, and when you think of any gift, there are two people involved. There's a donor, the giver, but there's no point being a donor if you haven't got a recipient. It's, it's, a, it's, it's much more like a dialogue than a monologue. It's not just one action, one person acting. It's not just in, the, in ways of faith. It's not just God giving us that gift. What's the point of that if we don't receive it? What would be the point if, we, if somebody gives us lovely birthday presents all wrapped up beautifully and labelled and everything, if we just put it on the shelf and never open it? That, that's, that's really what I'm thinking about tonight. A very good friend of mine who died a few years ago and would be well known in the city of Cambridge, Father Tony Philpott, wrote a book on the sacrament of confession, of reconciliation, and he, he called it clearing the sight. So getting rid of whatever is not going to be working in 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 favor of, of the seed of god the the seed of um the kingdom of god which is what we all uh, receive in 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 our baptism so i was going to look at a few other things that get in the way I, I mentioned to one of my parishioners in thetford today that that i was going to talk about things that get in the way of faith and she immediately said oh my husband <laughs> well actually other people can have a profound effect on how we're going to receive the gift of faith. And certainly family members, we can be a tremendous support one to the other. And not necessarily by what we say, but sometimes just by the way we are. And I had an experience when I was a boy, I was about 10 or 11, and I was not asleep but I was in bed and I was kind of just bored and so I thought I know I'll go down and have a glass of water maybe mum or dad will still be down I went to went down the stairs walked through the sitting room the dining room 
and to get to the kitchen for my glass of water. My father was kneeling in front of an armchair with his head in the, in the chair, obviously saying his night prayers. He didn't say a word to me as I went past, because, you know, you could get a bit of a telling off, not, not staying in your room and getting to sleep. But, but that had a profound effect on me, because, because the message there was, this is not just something we talk about, this is something alive and active, and it means something to me. So without a word being said, the gift of faith was, the gift that God gives me of my faith was strengthened because of the influence of that key family member in my life. And so we, 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 we can affect each other, family members and friends. We can have a tremendous effect. We can be affected by other people, both, both positively and negatively, and we can be a good influence on others. And I say it's not what we say often, it's who we are, whether we've got the gift of faith in our heart. If we have... I believe it gets transmitted in every human interaction that we have. And if it's lacking, maybe the opposite takes place. And and that's something, of course, that we want to try to avoid. There are lots of different things that uh, can can challenge our faith, can make us doubt. You know, some of the big things are war. You know, for some people, it's interesting, after the two world wars, there was a little spike in the number of men offering themselves for the priesthood. But there were probably an equal number of people who turned against God because of the experience. And I was talking to one friend about this, and they said, well, you know, when we say in the Our Father, thy will be done, it doesn't mean to say that everything that happens is God's will, but he allows other things to happen. And that can be that can be a cause of an increase in faith for some, and it can be a, 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 a huge challenge for others. You know, how can there be a God when such things as the concentration camps took, uh, took place? How can there be a God when some people rush so easily to war and to violence? I remember one rabbi speaking on the radio once, and he was challenged by somebody saying, how can you believe in God. Where was God? He said in the concentration camps. And the rabbi thought for a minute and he said, he was in there with us suffering. And I, and I thought, what a, what a man of faith. What a way to interpret that horrendous, probably the most horrendous human act that we could ever think of. But it, for some, it's a challenge. For some, it's a means of, of the blocking our faith. And for others, it's, it's a means of drawing closer to God, despite the, the violence and the horror of it all. You know, when, when we're baptized, our parents are described as the first and best of teachers in the ways of faith of their child. And, and I think that's a key relationship for the child growing in faith as they grow as we grow in other ways too and no matter what catechists do no, no matter what teachers in catholic schools do or no matter what priests or nuns or anybody else we cannot take the place of the parent and we can support what the parent does so i think that that we we sh we should try to strengthen the faith of parents by uh, the way we do things in our parish for instance in first communion preparation we're beginning to think along lines of 
not just having sessions for the children, but during, at the same time having sessions for the parents. And I know that we've done that in St. Lawrence and, and other parishes where that has taken place. And and so that what we're doing, we're not taking the place of the parents in in transmitting the faith to the children, but we are helping them to do to fulfil their vocation, which is to uh, be the first and best of teachers of their child in the ways of faith. We had um, a guest speaker for another Credo program, Georgia Clark, and um, she's a youth minister. Uh, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't, can't remember the details of where she's based, but um, that's exactly what she does. She encourages the parents and the families to to learn more about their faith so that they can obviously then share that with with their child it's you know we see we've seen it a few times that the parents aren't very confident maybe mm. english isn't their first language or something mm. like that but they're just not confident enough in their prayer life but they want their child to make their first holy communion and take those steps it's so yes. important that they are encouraged and helped exactly. and supported as well yeah and i think it's in isaiah where it talks about some people have faith like a little 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 spark but it's there we have a choice we can either step on it and put it out or we can do what we can to fan that up into a flame of faith Mm -hmm. which is going to then survive I, i often think of faith as being like a delicate plant in a in a in a in a very bad place maybe a place where there's been a factory and it got got knocked over got 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 um pulled down and all the rubble is around or the rusty iron and then the great big blocks of, of cement and bricks and everything and if you leave it long enough now you'll see eventually a little plant will make its way up through all that debris and despite all the odds it survives and we have and i think that faith can be like that that it might it might be surrounded by things that uh, 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 seem to go against it surviving but it finds a way, it finds a way to survive. And I think that's like the faith in our own lives. And, and that's, that's one of the ways I see the gift of faith. So like you say, Chia, uh, to encourage others. You know, when parents come to ask for baptism of their child and you know they haven't been to the church, who are we to be the ones to stamp on that little bit of faith that mm-hmm. they have? I always take the view that it's much better to encourage it because otherwise we're turning ourselves into judges. And um, we're we're not the judge, you know. We 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 we. There's only one judge, and we're not very good at it, frankly. You know, when we start thinking about other people in their lives and sort of making all sorts of uh, decisions about them, uh, we're just not very good at it because we weren't supposed to do it. That's not our job. We leave that for the Lord, and um, and and there's another thing I want to say about faith, and that is in terms of habit. It's funny how that word. Is, often has a sort of a negative connotation. Oh, like smoking is a habit. You only smoke because you have this habit, your this inner urge to do it. And, and yet some habits are really good habits. Like, for instance, going to Mass on Sunday. It's a habit, and it's a good habit. So, so some people might criticise that and say you're only doing it because you're in the habit of doing it. But if you if you act on your faith and are charitable and forgiving... 
people don't say to you, oh, you're just doing that because you're in the habit of being charitable and forgiving. So the point I'm making is that habits are not necessarily negative. And to be in the good habit of saying regular prayers, saying the rosary every day maybe, um, going to Mass on Sunday, and all, this, all the different things that we, you know, we were brought up to, to do, they may be habits, but it, the habit itself is like a, a, a skeleton on which we can hang our faith, if you see what I mean. It keeps going. And in days when our faith is weak, maybe that, um, that habit will keep us going. So the habit of prayer and, and, and doing things that we're used to doing, even if we don't feel like it. You know, I heard a comedian say, it's one thing being a funny person, but you've got to be a funny person in Milton Keynes on Tuesday night at 7.30, you know, and, and it's a bit like that with our prayer life. You know, sometimes I feel like that. Oh, I've got Mass at 8 o'clock in the morning, so I've got to say Mass at 8 o'clock in the morning. Now, is my heart and my soul ready? Well, I, I do my best to make it ready, but, but our prayer life, I think that if we have those habits, those good habits, and try to eliminate the bad habits, I think another... Uh, thing that prohibits us from believing fully is that we're actually not worthy that God's mercy is okay for everybody else everybody else but somehow for whatever reason and maybe there's a psychological reason like having a low self-esteem whatever's caused that and I do believe that some people go through life honestly thinking that they're beyond the reach of the mercy of God and there was a beautiful reading a couple of weeks ago at Mass on Sunday where it said about that God has shows us his mercy so that we may repent. And I, that really blew my mind in a way because I thought normally we think of that as being the other way around, that we repent and then God shows us his mercy. And I, I can't remember, I should have done more preparation for this, I can't remember exactly what reading it was, but it was about two weeks ago on Sunday readings. And it actually said that 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 God's mercy enables us to repent. So once we know we're forgiven, then we can repent. And repent doesn't just mean saying sorry for our sins. It means a change of mind and a change of heart, a change of direction in our lives. That can only happen once we know that we've been shown mercy. It's a bit like St. Teresa of Avila used a lovely example of a dust in a room you know if you're in a if you're in a room you're at home your sitting room and there's bright sunlight coming through the the window every speck of dust shows up and it's a bit like that with ourselves too that god's love his light coming into our lives then we realize my goodness you know i'm i really shouldn't be acting this way or saying things like that to or should be, I should be better. And it's only when the light is shining that we can see what needs to be done. So the mercy comes, which then enables us to repent. It's a beautiful way to look at it, isn't it? Absolutely. Your imagery, it's just, it took me a while actually to get what you were saying because it's just almost against what... What with the way we're brought up. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'd say, you've been bad, go to confession, yeah. and then God forgives. But this understanding... It literally took... You ha I had to repeat what you just said. Yeah. Because it didn't sink in naturally. Yeah, because it's so <laughs> against the way we're, we're sort of raised to think of ourselves. Yeah. You think of your sins, then you say you're sorry, then God forgives you. And I think that's fine, by the way. I don't want to... I don't want to, to sort of put that completely on the back burner, but but this understanding of God's mercy is far more powerful, is far more interactive, because God takes the initiative. That's the point. It's not about what we do, it's about what God does. God chooses to show mercy to the sinner. 
that's not our business, that's God's business. So what, how are we going to react to that? If we know that we're loved, then we're going to feel good about ourselves and perhaps be a little bit better in different ways. I often say, um, use the, difference, the different forms of love that we know of, like the love of um, the a romantic love, which is focused on one other person, and the general love that God talks about in the in in the scriptures about you know love your neighbor they're very different and i think that god alone can love in both ways equally so he calls us by name looks at us calls us by name and loves us individually but he loves us he loves the whole community now you imagine a, a young couple very much in love and the boy says to the girl i love you and then goes on to say but then i love everybody she's not going to feel that great about it because it's, he's confused the two types of love i remember Years ago, I bumped. I was in a house, and there was a young lady in the house who said to her mother, "Mummy, why is John so awful to me?" And the mother said, "Oh, darling, that's because he loves you." And she thought for a moment. She said, "Well, I wish he would just like me and be pleasant." <laughs> and I thought that's the perfect example of the difference between agape, the love that God asks us to show in our general life to everybody. And eros, the focused romantic love, which is a very special form of love, and other people can enjoy the radiation of that, but they're not actually involved in it. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I think that God can love us in both ways, both individually, personally, calling us by name, but also loving everybody. We can't do that, but we try to, we try to fulfill the command of God to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think that's the key about loving others as ourselves. I think a lot of people can love others but not love themselves and they think they're a mistake. I mean, it shows up in little ways. I, I made a joke of it in, in my present parish when I was there before. There'd be a lady phone up and she'd always say, it's only me. And I used to say, I used to say, we don't have any only me's in this parish. We're all, val I mean, it sounds a bit pompous <laughs> as I say it to you, but we only have beloved sons and daughters of God. But that's true. Equally, equally. <laughs> so loved. funny you say that because when I walk into the office, we have, um, well, the main office is upstairs. So when the door goes, they think that a customer has walked in. So I have to announce if it's just only me, <laughs> yeah. I have to announce it. But um, everyone else sort of announces their name, mm. you know, like, oh, that's but I always say, only me, like yeah, that. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Do you know, the guy who works upstairs says, Stop it. Really? He said, you he mustn't say thing. that. Yeah. You mustn't say that. Yeah. He said, you're Lucia. Yeah. Called it's by not name. only. Yeah, exactly. None <laughs> of us are only anything. But, I still do it, though. And so we're not outside the mercy of God. We are very much inside the mercy of God. And once we feel that mercy and that love, then we can... So we're going to have a bit of music? I think so. Okay, let's hear it.
talking about clearing the site, mm-hmm. you know, for, so that something can happen, it made me think about what we do sometimes in prayer. Because prayer, ideally, is a dialogue, isn't it? Even if no words are spoken, it's, it's, it's God and ourselves in conversation. Sometimes words are too blunt an instrument to use, like, again, a couple in love sitting there watching the sunset. You know, they run out of words because words are too blunt to express what they're holding in the heart and their mind for each other. Well, if we carried that into our prayer life, involved in this loving relationship, we can think of it as an exclusive thing because of the way I've put it before, you know, that... um, that then, then, but then, when we go to pray, what happens? We're thinking about what we're going to have for dinner. Did, have I got to pop into the supermarket because I forgot to pick up the milk? All the different things that come crushing in, and I've often wondered how to cope with that when we just want to pray. And I, the best advice I ever had was, in line with clearing the site, was don't fight what comes into your mind, but look over its shoulder. Because that's not what you want at this particular moment. You're trying to have an encounter with God who loves you. So if you get engaged in the distraction, it will win. But if you if you just let it go and look over the shoulder and almost say to it, actually, that's very interesting, but that's not what I want to deal with right now. And so you're looking beyond it, all the time looking beyond it. Then another one will come, look beyond it. And all the time you're sort of getting rid of the stuff that stops us from having a real communication with God. And even the greatest saints, like St. Teresa of Avila, spoke about dryness in prayer, you know. So not to be worried by that, but always just to say, well, here I am, here I am. I'm, I'm making myself available, like the handmaid of the Lord. Speak about Mary, the handmaiden of the Lord. So the handmaid is just there waiting for the Lord to say, can you get me a sauce or a cup of tea or whatever? You know? I mean, that's what a handmaid is, isn't it? So we're, we're making ourselves available to God. So in, where it says in the scriptures, you know, that, that um, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, you know, and how easily we can all turn that around. Listen, Lord, your servant is speaking. And, and our prayers can be like a long list giving God his instructions for the day, you know, make Auntie Mary better and stop the war. And that was fine. I mean, I'm not against the prayer of intercession. But it, while, you, while, we, while we're trying to engage in, in, in mental prayer or whatever, or contemplation, probably a better way to put it, then we're into something other than just the prayer of petition or the prayer of praise, or even the prayer of thanksgiving. And they're the three great forms of prayer, I think. But when we're engaged in this contemplation, which any of us can do, we don't need to be monks, nuns, priests, holy, or anything. Any of us can do it, and we can do it anywhere. But just to put ourselves in the presence of God and see if something happens, see if a little spark takes place. But all the time, refusing to fight the distraction because the distraction will win. And that'll be the end of our prayer. It was a beautiful way to look at it. And um, it's, it's something that I try to do in my own prayer life. I wanted to say a word too about culture. You know, when I was in Thetford before as parish priest, I left there and went to South America. That was in 1991. And Part of the reason I wanted to do that was to to see what was absolutely essential in the church as distinct from cultural overlay. So that 
it's not always it's not always um, possible, I think, to just be very clear about that. But but sometimes I think cultural overlay can take over. So in other words, we think that the 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 good news can only be preached in our culture, can only be expressed in our culture, whatever culture that is. And um, so we come up with you know when you think of that when they think of that Jerusalem, you know, oh, did those feet in England? No, they didn't. You know, that London was not the centre of Jesus's life. He didn't come here. He he wasn't, you know. So, and yet when we think of Christianity, we think of Europe particularly and tend to think of other parts of the world except the New World, as we used to call it, you know, United States, Australia, New Zealand. But when you think of Asia and places like that, you know, that, that if they're going to have, if they're going to express and respond to God's mercy through the Trinity in their lives, then perhaps we need to be more sensitive about doing that within the culture that they have. When I was a missionary, a very old missionary said to me, don't forget that the missionary goes to meet God as well as take God, so that he's already there. He got there before you, actually. He got, you know, he got there before you. So, And it reminded me of a cartoon I saw many years ago of it was during the time of the British Empire sort of, and it was it was set in some Pacific island and this boat with all the sails fluttering and the man got off the boat and he had a cricket bat tucked under his arm and he said to the people there, I've come to civilise you, you know. And I think that if we're not careful, we can we can think that European culture or our culture is the only way to do it. I remember once when I was doing a mission appeal in the United States, I did a lot of them when I worked for the Missionary Society of St. James. And um, I was in one parish, it was in Pennsylvania, and the priest was showing me to, to, showing me to my bedroom for that night. He said, look out of your bedroom window, he said, and you can see seven churches. He said, there's the Hungarian church, there's the German church, there's the Irish church, there's the Italian church, and he went on like that. They were all Catholic churches but they didn't have much to do with each other because they were so embedded in their own language, in their own culture. They couldn't see outside it to see what we actually share in common, which is beyond our culture. It might have cultural expressions, but your cultural expressions may be different from mine. So, so I think we need to be aware of that and, and to, you know, not to be, not to be so, so um, sort of introspective when it comes to that and to be a little more open to other cultural expressions of the divine communicating with us as his children on earth. And and it's not always easy. As I say, I'm, I'm a, I remember my father used to say that when he was at school, they'd have the litany of saints from an Irish nun, and St. Patrick was mentioned about every tenth saint, you know. So, again, there's that, that, that thought that, you know, we're, we're bringing you now, you know, we're bringing you our culture as, 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 along with the, with the spirituality and the religion. And I just think we need to be a little bit careful of that. Can I tell you another thing that I think can be an obstacle to faith? Not allowing doubt. Not allowing doubt. doubt. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah because we're, we're people of, we're, 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 we're psychological, we have a mind, a heart, and a soul, and a body. Our mind is going to be an inquiring mind. It always is, isn't it? Is God real? That's what it's going to say. And I think instead of suppressing that thought, we should embrace it and and include it in our prayer life and in our faith life. Because to me, one side of the coin is faith, the other side is doubt. And they're, they're both sides of the same coin. And you can't have one side of a coin without the other. 
and and so I'm talking about the intellect here. What when it gets going, you know, how can there be a god? This universe is so big, it's so old, and and all the different things that our minds cope with. But we says in Saint John, you know, eternal life is this: to know Jesus Christ, the one the Father sent. To know Him. So, in other words, to know Jesus brings a particular type of knowledge, which is deeper than the intellectual doubts that we may have on any given day. It's deeper. It's it's something more profound, and it sustains us. It's a bit like, say, a couple getting married, and um, you are, you know, there's the beautiful prayers at the wedding, and everyone's happy. It's a lovely day. But we all know that they're going to be bad days. We know they're going to be days when, you know, if the husband comes home and says, "Oh, darling, I have to go, I, I go on a business trip next week. I'll be away for three nights." And she's thinking, oh, thank God for that. I'd be able to have lunch with my, my girlfriend. I'd be able to play around the golf and clean the house and watch what I want to watch on TV. Now, that's not a sign that the love has gone. It just it shows it in a way that's deepened, actually. Uh, and, and, and also when, when a row takes place, I hate rows, by the way. I hate conflict. Just, just one of the things I suppose I never, never sort of experienced much when I was growing up. And, um, but we know it's part of life. And, and, and But even in the middle of a bad time like that, I think a couple can, can reflect on the fact the ring on the finger is a sign that there's a, there's a deeper love than the emotion of the moment. And where it says in the Old Testament, you know, don't, let, don't, go, to, don't go to bed with anger in your heart. And if one finds the strength to say to the other, darling, I love you, I know we're going through a bad time, but just want you to know I love it, and that, that's what the ring symbolizes. You know, my mother and when father got married in 1939, and my mother kept that wedding ring on her finger for decades until she was quite elderly and went into hospital, and she had to have a scan, and, a, and somebody took that ring off her finger without asking her, and uh, for the scan, it was not safe for the scan. I know she didn't complain. She wasn't a complaining sort. But I thought, that must have hurt her terribly to think that that ring had been on that finger since 1939 for decades and decades. But, uh, and because it symbolized something profound, far more profound than the emotions of the moment. That, I think, is how our relationship is with God. That, that even if we have doubts, don't worry, don't be frightened by them. Because the faith that we have goes deeper than that. What we're dealing with is something more profound than that. So let the mind just have its way for a little while, once in a while, and uh, don't don't be frightened. If that, and also, it can be a, it may be a sign that we're letting go of maybe a childish understanding of God and our relationship with God, and embracing a more adult one. And that doesn't just happen as we're growing up. I think that happens throughout our life. So we're all the time trying to refine our understanding of God. When I was making my first communion, we learned a little prayer. And um, I used to say that prayer every time I went into a church. And when I was in the seminary, I thought, that's the prayer of an eight-year-old boy making his first communion. I should learn another one. So I had a look at the Psalms. And the, you know the priests and nuns to say the office, the Psalms. The, there's a beautiful Psalm, Psalm 62, which is the first Psalm on Sunday week one of morning prayer. And... It says, O oh God, you are my God, for you are long. For you my soul is thirsting, my body pines for you, like a dry, weary land without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. And I learned that off by heart when I was a seminary. And here I am, 50 years later, still 
saying that prayer because that was a more grown-up prayer to say. And, and, and I think whenever we embrace something, we let something go, don't we? So in the maturing process, like our bodies grow and develop, we have growing pains at one point of our life, you know, growing pains. So why wouldn't that happen with our spiritual lives too? We have growing pains as we are developing and maturing in our faith. And it's not just a continual getting better and better and better. It's more like up and down. And, and we take the good along with the bad. But we try in every respect to be faithful disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. And, and, and that's our common vocation, whether we're a pope, a bishop, a priest. That's our common vocation, to be disciples of Christ. And we walk together behind the leader behind the leader. I remember once when I was in South America, I was in a town in Ecuador, and we were going on a priest retreat. And I'd never been to Ecuador before, let alone to the center where the retreat was going to take place. And I was asked to drive one of the cars, so I drove a car, and a friend of mine, a priest friend of mine, got in the in the, in the the passenger seat, and I was going to follow the priest in front because he knew where they were going. We were going along talking about this and that and the other. I overtook... I overtook the guy I was following. And this priest said to me, Father Joe Bibby, parish priest of Leyland in Lancashire now, he said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, we're going to the priest retreat. Where are you going? So I'm going to the priest retreat. Yeah, well, where is the priest retreat? Oh, I don't know. I said, I'd leapt in front of the car. Now, I take that as a metaphor, how easily, how easy it is for us to leap in front of the leader because in every other aspect of life, we need to be in control. We need to know everything's right and we're sort of you know, up and, and at it. But in our discipleship, we are not ultimately in control. And maybe we should have a piece more music. <laughs> I think I have a, a good song um, on that on that note. Looking, um, uh, yeah, keeping your eyes on Jesus. This is a, a, a good one. It's uh, Lauren Daigle. Um, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I'll let the lyrics. Obviously, this is a, a recover version of this lovely this lovely song. So the words will speak for themselves. So here we go. This is Lauren Daigle's version of Turn Your Eyes. And while this music is playing, our lines are open. If there is anyone out there who would like to comment or speak to Father Pat if you have any questions the number to call is 01223 375564 
please continue, Father. One other obstacle to our faith. One other obstacle to our faith, I think, can be the history of Christianity in our culture. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people think today we're living in a post-Christian society because far fewer people attend church and profess a, 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 religious, a religious affiliation. And, um, for instance, in my town, where I am at the moment, in Thetford, I read a plaque on a wall, which I could hardly believe last week, and it said, it said on this site was a church, a medieval church, one of 22 medieval churches in Thetford. Thetford at that time had fewer than 5,000 people in it, which meant there was one church for every 227 people living there, let alone those who went to church, which is absolutely incredible when you think that it also had a priory, it also had another religious house, which is now, of course, in ruins. And um, if we... If, if people were attending church at the same rate as they were then, we would need 110 churches in Thetford. Now, the reason I'm saying all that is people look at the ruins of a monastery, they look at the medieval churches, which are now being turned into other things because people don't go to church the way they used to. That in itself, I think, can be an obstacle to faith in the sense that we think that we've moved beyond it. There's a part of our culture that would say that, and we're kind of stuck in the medieval times, and really we need to get rid, of, get with the program. G.K. Chesterton had a word to say about that. He said the problem isn't that Christianity has failed, but it hasn't yet been tried. Now that's a typical Chestertonian comment, you know, where he takes something and turns it upside down and presents it to you to have a fresh look at it. It hasn't been tried. And I think that's why I was saying before the music break that it's our personal commitment, our personal discipleship, our personal choice to follow Jesus and his teachings. That's where the spark is. That's where the life is. We have to forget the, the cultural past and the historia and the Christian past, I think, of our, of, 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 by when we look at these empty buildings and buildings that have been demolished and used for other things, you know, it can, it can have a heavy effect on our faith if we're not careful. But that's not what it's about. That was then, this is now. This is our time to decide whether or not to be a disciple, whether or not to be a follower. This is our moment to do that. And it's not going to last forever. We have it now. We have that ability to make the choice. Once we decide that we are going to follow Jesus, we are going to try and live according to his teachings so that we're people of compassion and love and understanding and forgiveness so that these things become a habit in our lives, that's where the spark is. That's where the Holy Spirit is. That's where the life is. So when we look at the past and we think, yeah, it must have been wonderful when everybody went to church. But then, of course, there was a lot of fear in that. You know, when you see when you see inside some churches it, where the art has survived, pictures of people going down into hell. And, you know, really the message was, better be careful. You know, you're not in church now, but what are you going to be doing tomorrow until Saturday? And um, I think that it, we can be far more positive and, and, and than that. Not frighten people into heaven, but invite them into heaven. That's the difference. And, um, and so I think that our culture, as I say, our religious past... I mean, you take France, for instance. France, supposedly a Catholic country. It was a Catholic country. We know that. And um, our, our, our holy days of obligation are public holidays. But the people are not in church. 
the church attendance is is low and also the the, the state has kind of encroached into church life i think it was napoleon who, who who took all the churches they now belong to the state and of course in our country in the 16th century the state went one step further and tried to take over the entire church lock stock and barrel you know with the with the reformation and um and when whenever the state tries to interfere with the church I think that we're the losers. We have to maintain that separation. I think I think it's so invite. We want to be part of the of the cultural conversation about how our country should be. We should take full part by voting and, and taking full part in civic life. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't. I really am not. But that our religion is not to do with the state. We we don't we don't follow Jesus because it's because the House of Commons are taking a vote on it. There's a separation there. And I think that once the church encroaches too much into church life, then it can be actually an obstacle to other people believing because especially if the church is tight as seen to be siding with this political party rather than that or this particular understanding of how to run a country whether it should be a monarchy or democracy and all the rest of it if we go too far down that road that in itself can be an obstacle to other people believing because we've sort of parceled ourselves off and said this is the only way to be a Christian to be a follower of Christ to be a Catholic in the modern world and it's not there are a multitude of ways of being a follower of Christ and um, and I think G.K. Chesterton was 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 very insightful when he said that the problem is not that Christianity has failed the problem is that it's never been tried I mean it's very fundamental it's very challenging but it's an interesting way to look at it so not to be weighed down by past there are lots of other things of course which inhibit our faith and i have to say scandal in the church in recent decades i don't want to go on about it but it has caused scandal it has caused people to question their faith you know when they hear these dreadful things and um we've had you know we've we've all encountered that and had to make our own personal journey maybe uh, uh, taking that into account and I think it's important there to remember that what we do does have an effect on other people and uh, how, how we know, although we're called individually, we're also called as a community together to march together. So we have to face up to unpleasant issues sometimes. And, um, and also, funny enough, timidity can be a disenabler for us following Christ if we allow other people to make our decisions, if we're easily influenced, if we're like the wallflower hoping to go through life unnoticed. You know, um, I remember it was actually Tony Philpott, who I've mentioned once before already this evening. He said that a teacher put on his school report, this boy will go through life pushing doors marked pull. And um, I think that we can all we can all be a bit like that at times and, and, and get it wrong. But um, but we, we certainly don't want to go through life unnoticed. We want to go through life and... If and to be able to say yes, I like that music, and I don't like that music. Just because you like it, I don't feel I have to say I like it. Also, but in other words, to to establish our identity as individuals, not to push it so far that we're bolshy or full of ourselves or have an inflated ego. That's different altogether. But to have a to have a healthy sense of our own worth, no matter what age we are, 
no matter what our circumstances are, what we own or don't own, none of that matters at all. But to have a sense of our self-worth based on the fact that we've been chosen and loved and have had mercy shown us. So I think, you know, it's, it's given me a lot of food for thought, this topic. I know that it seems a bit negative. What if we're, we're talking on a program called Credo, I believe? Why are you talking about these things? But I think that we need to clear the site. We need to get rid of a lot of stuff so that the little plant of faith can take root in the solid soil and find good roots and grow despite everything, foul weather, people tramping about with great big boots on, that that little plant will survive if we want it to. And that's, 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 that's what I hope for, for all of us as we try to be followers of Christ in the present age. Oh, Father Pat, thank you very, very much. Your, um, oh, your stories. Father Pat, I think, you know, personally, I know I, you taught me so much as a parish priest, you, I wouldn't be here in my faith journey. You cleared away a lot of obstacles for me. You definitely did. And the whole family, actually. And, um, yeah, I just want to say thank you very, very much for just taking the time to be here and share all of this. In the, you know, in just less than an hour, I've, I've already learned, I've learned a lot, a lot more. And I'll take away... I know our listeners are going to take away a lot from, from, from your lovely stories. They really will. Thank you. It's been wonderful to have you here. It really has. Thanks, A real you. blessing Appreciate for that. us. And um, I hope that you come again. Thank you. Yeah. You're I don't know if we get invited back a second time. So <laughs> <laughs> Except to apologise. <laughs> well, you're very warmly invited back, definitely. And... Um, so, would you like to say a final prayer and our uh, blessings yeah, for our, sure. for our listeners? Yeah. Let us pray that in our own lives we'll have true humility, which is absolute honesty about who we are, those things which are good and we can celebrate, those things which we need to look at. And even if they're challenging, we look at them in the company of the one who loves us, the one who's holding us by his hand and leading us to the eternal kingdom of God. So we, we ask God to give us the courage not to hide things in the cellar or the attic to do with our lives, but to open the door, to allow the light to shine, the light of Christ, the light of the world. We have nothing to fear. He has already paid the price for our eternal redemption. Our task is to say amen to that. We're not the prime movers. God alone is the prime mover. Thank you, Lord, for calling us by name, for gracing us with your presence and for giving us a dignity, as one of the early popes said, that we shouldn't take for granted. Christian, be aware of your dignity as a follower of Christ, as someone who's said yes to God through Jesus. And even if that yes is faltering at times, even if we hide our faith under a bushel at times, we pray that we may be people of faith, following the master, not trying to overtake, with L plates on, because we're all learners. So no matter what stage of our lives we're at, no matter what stage of our faith development we're at, I think if we can always be aware that we have L plates on, we're learners. We're learner drivers. We're following the Lord. Lord, give us the grace to make this come true in our own lives, in the lives of those who are listening to us, in the lives of our family and friends. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Father Pat.